You are listening to the AI Ready Healthcare podcast. I'm your host Anirban. I lead a research group in Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany where we translate AI solutions to problems in image guided diagnosis and surgery. The purpose of this podcast is to connect the physician scientists and healthcare professionals with the advanced AI research from the Mikai Society. Here I talk to fellow scientists from both communities about the translational aspects of AI in healthcare. Opinion is whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the boat is leaking. Everybody knows the captain lied. Everybody got this broken feeling like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking to their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolate and a long stem rose. Everybody knows. You are listening to some verses of the poem Everybody Knows by Leonard Cohen. And now, today's podcast on AI Ready Healthcare. It is my pleasure to host today's AI Ready Healthcare podcast. This is the first season of the podcast. Here we are talking about different aspects of AI and how it can be translated into the healthcare, whether healthcare is even ready to take AI into account. And it is really, really wonderful for me to have today uh, Professor Terry Peters. Professor Peters is a senior, senior member of the Mikai Society. He has been a key part, instrumental in actually seeing the society grow into what it is today now. Apart from that, he's, of course, a professor from Ontario, Canada, and he's mainly working in the Roberts Research Institute currently, and he has a significant amount of research focus around image-guided surgery, particularly navigation. So we will hear more about Professor Peter's current focus as well as how things happen. Thank you, Professor Peter, so much for joining me, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's uh, it's a pleasure to to take part. All right. So I guess the first question to you, Terry, then is about your becoming, how you are trained, uh, how you became who you currently are. Okay. So it's um, an interesting story. I'm a New Zealander. The background you see on my screen is actually my sister's deck in Auckland, New Zealand, where I had hoped to be at this point. However, I'm not there. I'm in London, Ontario, Canada. But I grew up in New Zealand, 
I did a PhD in electrical engineering. And the topic of my PhD was image reconstruction for CT, right in the very early days of CT, before I even knew about Helmsfield, who eventually won the Nobel Prize for, for CT. That was my, the start of my journey into medical imaging. And as part of the time in New Zealand, and just after I'd finished my PhD, I was asked to help the New Zealand government evaluate CT for the, for the country. And as part of those travels, I encountered someone who became a very good friend who lived in Montreal at the Montreal Neurological Institute. He invited me to spend a couple of years at the MNI helping with image-guided neurosurgery. Those two years moved into 19 years at Mon in Montreal and a further 22 years here in London. Canada. So I've started off in image-guided neurosurgery, um, moved to London, Canada, and continued image-guided neurosurgery in London, and expanded the lab to image guidance in multiple organ systems on the basis that image-guided interventions, regardless of organs, have a lot of the same foundational hardware and software bases. So I formed the lab for uh, virtual augmentation and simulation and surgery and therapy, or the VAST lab. Uh, here at Robards in London. Wonderful. So I guess because you just mentioned how closely involved you were back in the days when CT was not standard, there was no Hounsfield unit, maybe as the names defined. So you have seen uh, the development of clinical imaging at the early age when it was very much based on standards, so driven by standards that should be maintained, that should be produced. And that was also something that clinicians closely follow, the health tech engineers, they, they also closely follow. And now there is, of course, AI deep learning. So how do you think the standards reproducibility has translated into this age? Well, back in the early days of CT, there were very standard algorithms that were deterministic and for MRI as well, that would allow you to be pretty certain that a particular algorithm would produce an image of a particular quality. And being an engineer and being schooled in sampling theory and the Fourier, Fourier theory, things like Nyquist sampling limits became a, a very important part of any reconstruction algorithm. So now, of course, we have deep learning replacing some of these Fourier transform techniques for both CT and MRI. And so we have to be very careful that the deep learning algorithms are not introducing elements into the image that the physics of the system would not allow. So I guess one question there is also that when you are talking about deterministic systems to actually going into the sampling part, into more of the information theory-based way. And then I guess when it came to re MR uh, reconstruction, you had this uh, sparse representation-based approaches. So those are really very applied algorithms in the sense that to make acquisition even feasible within a certain time or with a certain limit of the uh, radiation exposure. So how is that different from the modern deep learning per se? I think they're sort of related. And in, in fact, deep learning is now piggybacking on sparse data acquisition for MRI, for example, and CT, I think. And so I sort of see that as a bit of a continuum. A lot of the same issues arise, whether you're talking about subsampled image data sets or whether you're talking about deep learning approaches for image reconstruction, I think. 
So one question, I guess, around the part where you were mentioning about the physics and that, like how the acquisition was actually based on the physical properties and like the algorithms were also keeping those in mind. I guess modern deep learning is not so much into uh, bringing those physical properties into the algorithm. There are no easy ways, let's say, if you are training your frequentist neural network for doing whatever, there are no easy ways to bring in such information about the export guidance. So what would be your advice to the earlier people who are trying to bring such knowledge or information into the deep learning? Well, I think that you should identify steps within a deep learning algorithm where you can impose the constraints that dictated by the physical principles of the instrument that you're using to acquire the images, whether that's CT, ultrasound, or MRI, just to ensure that the data that you get as output really doesn't violate any of the physics principles used to acquire the data in the first place. Here comes the question also about the third party, the stake, one of the stakeholders apart from the algorithm developers and the clinicians are the uh, manufacturers and the companies in general, and how they like they always lived on algorithms. It's just that we are now talking about more of learning-based algorithm, data-driven algorithms rather than the more of the model-based ones. So how do they actually see this? change in the mindset? Well, clearly companies like all the major CT and MR companies are, have embraced AI is at some level in their reconstruction algorithms. I'm also aware that many companies are unwilling to embrace artificial intelligence, particularly when it involves deep learning, because they want to be able to, in case of failure of, of an algorithm, they want to be able to go to a line of code and figure out what, what was the problem and fix it. And in many cases, that may be very difficult or impossible in a complex deep learning network. I think this is a, a visible case of deep learning not being embraced by some industries because they feel it could compromise the robustness of their system. This is also a very interesting point where, let's say, the companies think about the robustness and probably also the explainability a little bit. But we hear also explainability from the perspective of the physicians where you say that, okay, if we are using deep learning as a guiding system, a computer-aided diagnosis system, it has to be explainable to a certain extent. So from your experience of so many years in the field, how real explainability is when an algorithm passes through, let's say, a certain set of test cases? So do you mean if an algorithm passes a certain set of test cases, then it should be deemed to be reliable? Is that what you mean? Basically, the idea is that nothing should ever be deemed reliable forever, right? So you should always maintain a certain standard of post-market evaluation to ensure that things are working. My question really was, once somebody said, okay, so these test cases, it has passed and now whatever FDA or some other body has approved it, how careful really people are in measuring how reliable these algorithms are? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And measuring re the reliability in response to performance on phantoms, which are sort of consistent and you, you know absolutely ground truth is one thing, but 
I think measuring the reliability of the same algorithms in a variety of clinical cases where in some cases the performance of the algorithm is highly dependent on the context, let's say of a, of a tumor with respect to the anatomical surroundings, then it becomes very, very difficult to keep absolute track of reliability because who knows how many mistakes get through because the clinician believes the result and doesn't have any any means of determining that an algorithm has failed, in fact. I guess this, this is also a bit of a question in the sense that some of the clinical jobs are relatively more straightforward than something else. So in the sense that in terms of verification, so let's say if you are coming up with a deep learning-based diagnosis system, it's extremely difficult because nobody like diagnose things only based on image information, but something more of a, let's say, navigation system where you are trying to, let's say, locate a catheter tip. I would say it's easier to verify whether even in the practice, a deep learning system or such a like support system is actually performing as it is supposed to be or not. So do you think then probably deep learning has chosen our wrong field of like let's solve diagnosis first and rather it should have chosen something else? Not necessarily. I just think we have to understand the constraints of using a deep learning algorithm and, and understand that there are possibilities of failure that we in areas that we don't just don't understand yet. I think deep learning certainly has a strong role in image-guided interventions, for example. But I think it's always a valuable principle to uh, maintain the, the surgeon or the expert in the loop. In other words, deep learning algorithms can be extremely valuable in providing the surgeon or the radiologist with guidance as to where to look for a particular lesion or a particular problem or a particular trajectory to a target organ in an image-guided intervention system and leave the surgeon to make the final decision. And, and this also potentially addresses some of the legal issues that can clearly come up if we rely totally on algorithms to provide all of the information to the surgeon without having the surgeon make a, make a final decision on based, as you say, on not only just the image, but his knowledge, other aspects of the patient as well. That's quite interesting because you are already talking about the legal aspects of it. I guess uh, when you are talking about legal aspects, you mean in case of failures, basically who should be sued, right? Or do you have something else in mind? No, exactly, exactly what, I'm, what I'm thinking about. Unfortunately, in, in some jurisdictions, medical liability is a, a huge factor in any procedure. If something goes wrong, someone has to be held accountable. Who is held accountable if, if something goes wrong in a system that is relying on a deep learning algorithm, for example, and a, a surgeon makes a decision, a bad decision based on a recommendation from the algorithm or a, an incorrect uh, surgical trajectory, for example, that, that causes the patient harm? This is also something uh, which is very interesting because like, I remember the first time I talked to you about three or four years ago, and basically the first hours sort of the initial advice you have given me is that if you are working on sort like surgery, image-guided surgery, healthcare tech, then you should be working closely with surgeons. There is absolutely no way of doing it without surgeons. And even today, you, you brought that up immediately. There should be human in the loop. I guess if we are 
really talking about the frontier of uh, medical imaging and AI in medical imaging, we think of Mikai Society. There, the Kai part, I would still think the surgeons, the interventional radiologists, they are probably a bit more involved. But when it comes to development of the method for segmentation, registration, diagnosis, more or less, no clinicians are involved in those diagnoses apart from maybe annotating the data sets. So how do you think that shows up in the longer run? You raise a good point, clinicians annotating data sets, and, and that raises the whole question of consistency across large databases. And in response to your question, how does that show up? It can certainly encode the biases of clinicians who are labeling data sets and can certainly bias the, the training data. This raises a plethora of, of issues. How do we ensure we have sufficient high-quality training data? How can we ensure that the training data are consistent across multiple sites, even mach different machines in the same site? If we're talking about MRI, multiple field strength. We know that deep learning algorithms can be sensitive to very, very subtle changes in images, even that just changes in the least few significant bits of, of, a, of a pixel, for example. These sorts of subtle changes can have a huge impact on the way an algorithm classifies a structure, for example. So if we have variability amongst different scanners, different manufacturers, different noise levels in, in images, different algorithms, different pulse sequences that purportedly produce the same sort of T1 or T2 weighting, for example, how do we guarantee that these data sets are of sufficiently uniform quality to be able to train robustly a deep learning network. This is one of my, my big concerns. So I guess this also brings the point that basically if we are just thinking of, let's say deep learning is a model which is trying to emulate the decision system, right? So then the decision system has basically two sorts of access. One is about the acquisition part, uh, well, there are, of course, variabilities, even if somebody says cardiac MR looks very different. Uh, we looked at CAT scans, the chest CTs during this COVID-19, we thought they would look similar. No, hell, they are very different from each other. And then the other aspect you talked about is even the annotator, like the, their experience plus their interest in actually annotating all of these matters. So there are two, let's say, such access of variability and there could be many in between. The problem really is that what you are saying is that each deep neural network is basically trained on one combination of these and then probably trying to overfit that. What would be the first thing that you would be addressing to solve this issue? I would like to see an effort, maybe led by Mikai, to produce, first of all, highly curated data sets that could all be passed through a, a common quality assurance filter, for example. And I know some, some imaging companies have these sorts of systems as part of their pipelines. But until we are able to ensure that the images that are required from arbitrary institutions around the world who, who are wanting to provide data for training these networks, until we can be absolutely assured that we're not talking apples and oranges between similar images from different institutions, then I'm afraid we're not going to be able to make a huge amount of progress. So I think this points out a, a huge role for 
society like Mikai to set up the procedures to enable these sorts of highly curated data sets to be obtained and shared. I mean, even if the sharing is difficult or impossible because of privacy issues, then setting up a federated learning environment that would allow individual institutions to share the data. But I think this is a huge roadblock, and I think this is a huge opportunity that we should be addressing. So you are talking about, let's say, sort of a central repository of highly curated data sets, like people don't even have access to it for training, but at least their algorithms are verified, maybe that sort of a first step. And then we see that, okay, maybe if we give out a certain bit of it and you train your deep neural network and then like how the performance really tallies. I guess I have a question in this regard is that Mikai society is too much focused into average performance and average performance of mean dies over the test data set mean, I don't know, some distance or target registration error, stuff like that. But average case tells so little, right? I mean, of course, it's a sort of forced sanity check that you are not doing bad, but the failure modes are the most interesting because probably even for the same disease, there are typical and atypical cases. And we know like if you are moving to pathology cases, typically performance fails unless you have trained your neural network with such pathology cases. So how do you see the validation of these algorithms in such a problematic setting? That's a very good, very good question, and I'm not sure I have a, a straight answer because the, the, there are there are always going to be outliers. And I completely agree with you that just reporting average performance of these these algorithms is is really not meaningful in a in a clinical case. If a particular clinical case happens to be one of the outliers, then that can have serious consequences for the patient. Unfortunately, the resources required to classify identify all of the possible targets within this image data set is, is, a, is a huge problem. I mean, we, we, ne- we do need expert classifiers to identify structures in all of these images. And the big roadblock is where do we get that clinical expertise? It's, I don't think we can do this by crowdsourcing, for example. We have to know that we have experts identifying all of these elements, all of these lesions in this huge variety of, of images that have been heavily curated. So I don't have the answer, really. That's actually a very open question, right? So, I mean, but I guess like what you said is that basically to even acknowledge the problem, you have to talk to experts, so be it radiologists, pathologists, whatever problem you are solving. So I will just tell you a brief sort of survey that I did to Twitter during last year's Mikai. So I asked the young people, the young PhDs in Mikai community, how often they talk to their clinical partners. And 25% of these people said that less like once every year or less than that. So, and they are the active contributors to to Mikai society. So that's not at all ideal if we are trying to be a Mikai society where medical is the core of it. So how do you really see that this problem can be addressed? Of course, it depends on how close the various institutions are to clinical partners. The bottom line is that at, at the at the end of any any Mikai project, there should be a patient. There should be a patient who can benefit from work 
that some some researcher within the Mackay community is doing. I've been very lucky throughout my career to have been in research institutes affiliated with with clinical departments. And so having a very strong clinical focus has never been a problem. But clearly there are many institutions around the world who are not affiliated with hospitals and working in somewhat of a vacuum. So I think that one of the things that we can do to address this is through Mikai to at least have stronger clinical input into the meeting to bring the clinical unmet needs to the Mackay community on one hand, and on the other hand, um, sort of further down the pipeline, to have the clinicians heavily involved in the review process of, uh, of Mikai to make sure that the work that's going on is actually clinically relevant and that they can see a way forward from new fancy algorithms that have been produced and that results that, that some group has really have a clinical impact. And unfortunately, I, I, I see a lot of work going on where the research is basically upping the performance of an algorithm over someone else's algorithm that they produced last year in a challenge, for example. But there's no evidence that 2% increase in classification performance or, or speed will have any impact on any patient. So I think we've got to build a mechanism into the Mackay Society to address both the highlighting of the unmet needs and determining whether the uh, the output of this research is actually impactful on the patient level. This is also like you just made, briefly mentioned about the competitions, the challenges in Mikai society, which was uh, like no doubt quite instrumental in, in really standardizing algorithms, standardizing performance, seeing the quality of algorithms being improved over the years. But do you also think that sort of uh, really took the clinician, like that was part of the reason of taking the clinician out because it somehow this, let's say, surrogate performance measure uh, became like entire community became so obsessed about it that they forgot that there is a patient at the end that should receive the benefit. Otherwise, there is no point in 2% improvement. That's exactly my point. And it's been my observation that a lot of researchers working and students working in computer science departments are working on algorithms for the sake of improving the algorithm with no real understanding of the way the images are acquired or the way they impact the patient in the long term. But I am encouraged to see more and more computer science departments um, partnering with um, clinical colleagues, whether they're in the same university or other universities, to frame their work within the context of real world problems and maintaining some sort of continuing interaction with clinical colleagues. I acknowledge that this is not, not easy. Clinicians, radiologists, surgeons are very busy people, and it's often difficult for them or not of particular interest for them to spend time interacting with computer scientists, biomedical engineers, students. But fortunately, there are a growing number of clinicians who also have computer science or engineering degrees and PhDs in these, these areas and are much more passionate about keeping this dialogue going. So I think as a society, we can do a lot to keep encouraging from both sides these sorts of connections. Maybe the pandemic has shown us that you don't have, actually have to be in the same building, the same city, or even the same country for this to happen. 
this is also a good point that you are saying that even if you are not in the similar or same geographical location, there are still probably possible ways to make that connection. I do have to say that after uh, talking to you, I made like I sit in a technical university, right? We have no hospitals in our campus, but we do have close collaborators now whom I talk to almost every week, every day. And what I realized is like from talking to you to actually talking to these guys for the last three, four years is that one significant effort that I had to put in is into coming up with a language where we can talk and understand each other. Because if I talk my language of classification, regression, deep learning, ELU network, blah, 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 they don't understand that. If they start talking about their particular disease, anatomies, anatomical variability, honeycomb, whatever, then I don't understand. During my PhD, I was not aware of this. How do you think somebody who is like doing a PhD in a computer science or maybe just after the PhD became a PI would actually come up with a dialogue? I think it just requires unilateral effort to seek out clinicians who are interested in the techniques that you can offer. And to start with, it may seem like a, an insurmountable goal, but it really is fortunate that many young surgeons and radiologists now have more of a basic science training as well and do have the same language data set that, that you have. Of course, it also requires an effort from the, uh, from the student or the young uh, faculty member to try to understand their language, their clinical language. I think I've been very lucky that I've been immersed in that sort of environment for so long that I've gathered most of that by osmosis. But starting off, I think it's it's not an easy task to jump into basic medical and clinical textbooks to try to understand the language. But I think it, by doing so, to at least understand superficially the anatomy and, and, and physiology that will allow you to have these conversations with the clinicians is uh, something that will pay off immensely later on. And I think that biomedical engineering training departments should consider as part of their curriculum to provide sort of mini medical school training for the students where students would at least shadow a clinician for several weeks during their training. I know from experience with training programs I've been associated with in, in other countries that this technique is extremely valuable and it's something that we're trying to incorporate into our biomedical engineering training program here in London. This also brings to the point that there is no instant gratification, right? So you see the value of putting this much effort only in the longer run. If you sit in a computer science department where quite a few of our Mikhail colleagues sit, I do definitely sit. It's not always very clear that a computer science department understands like the situation, how interdisciplinary research works or what would be the benefit in the longer run? It's more of a you know a tenure track or bring the grantee in, publish the research at top places, publish or perish. That's that sort of the model. So how do you think that somebody who is sitting in such an environment can still operate and keep a balance of these two worlds? Well, I can give you an example from my institution. We have recently 
the last three or four years ago, we we acquired a new chief of radiology or chief of medical imaging, as it's as it's known within our university context. And he became very very passionate about making links between the radiology community, biomedical engineering community, and the computer science community. So. In this case, it was actually driven by the clinicians. And the result of that is that we're right now at the initiation of this chair of medical imaging. We are writing a training program with the computer scientists. And this is this is a, a new, completely new direction for them. So I think that the message is that every institution will be different, but the key is to find the appropriate clinician, preferably at the higher level, who can become excited about the prospect of tapping into the expertise in a computer science or electrical engineering department to help them solve problems that they see day to day and maybe take for granted that, well, this is just the way it is. But identifying that maybe if we look at some of these problems from a different perspective, maybe there are techniques out there that that can help us. I think these are the keys. It's, I don't think there's one size fits all. It depends on who you have in institutions, the sorts of institutions you have around you. But in most cases, I think you'll find there will be a connection to be made. And all it takes is one really motivated junior faculty member, for example, or even a senior student, a postdoc, to talk to clinicians and hospitals, maybe in a, in a different city, but just to get them excited. First of all, find out what, they, what they're doing, what their problems are, speak enough of their language to, so that they don't uh, dismiss you, and get them excited about what you may be able to contribute to them. So I guess this is also quite interesting. What you are mentioning is about, let's say, the more translational aspects or the real problems. I guess that's also a situation where a really motivated person goes there and figures out that, okay, they are not interested in automatic segmentation pipeline. Now what they do, because uh, when they come back and try to publish the interesting work in Mikhai community, somebody might say, ah, that's the deep learning method you are using from four years ago. So this is so not 2021 and uh, we are rejecting you for blah, blah and blah reason. So I guess the question really is that there are some problems which are considered as mainstream in Mikhai. And there is a significant focus on bringing solutions around those problems again and again up there. And I guess the area chairs are also quite responsible along with the reviewers to really promote that one homogeneous type of problems. So how do you think we can bring more of the real non-mainstream problems into the Mikai society? A couple of years ago, when I was program chair, I was I was passionate about trying to push that agenda to make sure that clinical relevance was given uh, a very high priority. And I think we've just got to keep reinforcing that concept through program chairs and area chairs as we move forward. One thing I noticed during my one time when I was doing a like Mikhail area chair, so basically what like I'm kind of opinionated and I do like feel on certain things quite strongly. So when I was an area chair, my feeling was that, okay, so there are certain clear accepts, clear rejects, everybody more or less agrees on that. That's not the question. But when it comes to the borderline papers, I prefer to see papers which are bringing controversial issues, maybe like one, two strong accepts, one strong reject or whatever, that kind of papers rather than those papers which are basically 
a slightly degraded version of the already accepted direct accept papers. And what I realized in area, like the Mikai area chair sessions, that there is a sort of, you know, like nodding agreement where people love to be in consensus with each other and they don't like to really put forward strong opinions to not make others angry, I guess. I don't know exactly what the reason is. So that makes the problem that we, I guess somehow from my opinionative view, we are really promoting a lot of mediocrity. Do you think that's right? Like, am I right in the viewpoint or I'm completely off in, in that way? No, I think you're right on target there. And of course, no review system is perfect, but I think the area chairs should always keep in mind the the focus of Mikai. My opinion is that there's so many valid questions, clinical questions that can be addressed. And Mikai is the place to promote solutions to these problems. And so I think that the role of the area chair should really be to keep that focus in mind. And in, in spite of getting a paper with two rejects because of, on an algorithmic perspective, it looks like more of the same, but one accept because it really shows a clear pathway to a clinical application, then that should be the overriding consideration. I guess there are one major concern of that is that you have to really think. So that takes a lot of energy as an area chair. Plus, you probably have to sort of make arguments, counter arguments, sort of verbal fight with other area chairs to make your point on the other side. So that's some more hard work with little potential gain apart from the fact that probably the other area chairs are your friend who might not like you. I guess that the point is really that how do we promote a culture among the area chairs to have a little bit more adventurous viewpoint towards research than then the boring mundane way of going about algorithmically three accepts equals accept. I think it's it's really ultimately up to the program chair to make that point very strongly to the area chairs to really be cognizant of the end goal of the research and to really highlight that. But it really is up to each individual area chair and, and maybe it could be more more strongly articulated at the Mackay board level in terms of the, the mandate of Mikai of the Mikai community to strongly emphasize these sort of translational issues. Yeah, I mean, I guess we are already uh, coming towards the end of the podcast. So you have seen Mikai developed for, I don't know, past 15, 20 years or mm -hmm. uh, whatever. Like before Mikai, there were like three conferences. I forgot the names, but they, that came together into Mikai. So how was the really transition from your perspective? What were the key moments of transition that you have witnessed and what you can think of where the Mikhail is actually heading? I think the biggest transition was when workshops really took off. In the early days, workshops, tutorials, and they, they didn't even have challenges back then, were a, a sort of icing on the cake for the main three-day Mikhail meeting. Maybe there were four or five workshops the day before, but Mackay meeting was the main event. Now we've got workshops that are sort of at least as impactful as the Mackay meeting itself. Both workshops where work can be discussed more freely than it can be perhaps in the, in the main meeting. Tutorials where newcomers can be brought up to speed in various techniques. And I think the most important change of all has been the, the challenges. And I think Mackay has done a fantastic job in really specifying a coherent roadmap for the development of, of challenges and for the analysis of, of challenge data. 
And I think that Mackay could easily become the go-to institution for any sort of challenges in the medical imaging domain. And that if a challenge has been put together under the auspices of Mackay, it can hold its head high and then claim that this is the Mackay challenge and you know you should take notice of, of the results. But I think that's probably the biggest change I've seen, I think, in the biggest area where I think Mackay can have impact. Yeah, so that was really a wonderful summary of, I guess, the, the evolution of Mikai into what it is today. And I guess you were very much involved from the earlier days to even now. I think in, in last time in, in China, you were the program chair. That was, I guess, also the last live Mikai we have been. And since then, we are at home attending Mikai's. So I really hope that changes soon. I mean, I would really, really like to be in Strasbourg. It's so close from where we are. Maybe not as close from your place, but it's still wonderful time we have whenever we can attend Mikai. So I'm really looking forward to that. I guess you are also trying to, like, really looking forward to get out of Ontario and back to the world. Trophy. Absolutely. In fact, I'm... I'm actively involved in a new Mikai bid for New Zealand in four years' time. So. Yeah, that would be wonderful. For me, this would be wonderful because I have never been to the Southern Hemisphere before. So <laughs> that would be a really, really nice thing for me to go and see New Zealand. Yeah. Let's see how well that goes. So all the best for the bid in four years from now. And thank you so much for the time you you like spent with with me and I guess the listeners will benefit a lot from your insight into the translational aspects of actual algorithms. So thank you so much, Terry. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. <laughs>